You are on the Crooked Mile. Join Ed on another fabulous adventure. Thanks very much. Thank you. Welcome again, everyone. Yes, you are on the Crooked Mile. Now, the official start of the war was in April of 1861, when after a long, tense siege, the Confederate Army relentlessly fired upon Fort Sumter. Fort Sumter was the last Union-held fort in the South. And when the shelling had stopped the next day, the Union Army was able to escape and they abandoned the fort, thus giving the Confederate Army the dubious distinction of the ones who actually started the war. Now come daybreak one July morning of 1861, it's said that families and reporters, as well as prominent political figures, crowded the nearby hillsides of Bull Run with all sorts of carriages and buggies, horses, and you name it, anything that looked like a vehicle was pressed into service. Now these folks that crowded the nearby hillsides of Bull Run, they were armed with picnic baskets. They were there to witness what was supposed to be the first and final smackdown of the rebel forces. It was all very exciting. It is reported that one woman in the crowd, armed with her opera glasses, said when after an unusually loud and heavy discharge of cannon fire, it roused the current of her blood, she said, Oh, isn't that splendid? Is that not just first rate? I guess we will be in Richmond tomorrow. And shortly thereafter, an officer rode up, exclaiming to the crowd, We have whipped them at all points, he shouted. And the crowd all cheered. The problem was that what he had witnessed was true as he had witnessed it. However, when he reached the crowd of onlookers, the news was about an hour old and the tide had turned. Some of the folks though on the hillside were not content just to see the rising gun smoke from a distant field. They wanted a better vantage point, so closer to the fighting they went. And as I said, the Union Army did have the upper hand for a time. I mean, they were literally on the verge of victory. But after a while, and so many things happening, the chaos and the cannon fire and the smoke and everything else and additional Confederate forces arriving all the time, the Union attack started to fall apart. The men became overwhelmed and exhausted. The Union Army began to retreat, chased by Confederate cannon fire. And those civilians who ventured closer to the fighting, well, they found it. They quickly realized that they were suddenly right in the middle of it. And the roads, already clogged by civilians and their carriages and buggies and horses, became impassable with the influx of all the retreating troops as Confederate troops fired relentlessly, blasting apart carriages as well as artillery wagons. It was blind panic. Wounded soldiers grasped at civilian carriages in hopes of refuge, while others just ran up to horses, cut them from their harnesses, and rode away. And in the midst of all the carnage, Confederate President Jefferson Davis arrived on horseback, just in time to see the Union Army retreat. And now what was supposed to be a quick whooping of the rebel forces turned into the bloodiest four-year hell America ever suffered on her own soil, with by some accounts up to nearly 700,000 men dead. And that's how it all started. Well, no, that's not quite right, but 
That's just a glimpse, a snapshot, if you will, in the first battle of the Civil War at Bull Run. There was actually years and years of tension that led to the outbreak of the war. But as in war, and in all the tensions that lead up to war, life goes on. It was April 5th, 1839, when Robert was born. He was born in Beaufort, South Carolina. Now, by all accounts, Robert, even at an early age, was smart, and he wanted to learn. He liked to learn. And early on, Robert realized he knew he wanted more for himself. And at the age of 12, Robert was sent to Charleston to work as, among other things, a waiter and a shiprigger and a sailor. And 12 years old, I mean, there was, at that time, there was no such thing as child labor laws. But... These jobs provided a wealth of knowledge for young Robert. But as he worked, all his earnings went back to a man named John McKee, the man who sent him to Charleston. And this pay arrangement continued till Robert was about 18 or so. Now, I don't know how he managed it, but after the age of 18, Robert was able to keep most of his earnings for himself, which allowed him to accumulate quite a savings. And like I said, Robert was smart. And he knew if he wanted more for himself, he knew he would need as much knowledge as he could acquire, and he knew he needed money. And now, here we are again, back in 1861, where Robert was hired, if you will, as a deckhand on the Confederate transport steamership called the Planter. Now, the Planter was assigned the job of delivering armaments to the Confederate ports. Now, as luck would have it, on May 13th in 1861, the crew of the planter went ashore for the evening for a night of drinking and carousing and general rowdiness. However, Robert was ordered to stay behind and guard the ship. Well, here it was. The opportunity Robert was looking for. The opportunity that he was hoping, praying, and planning for. With the rest of the crew longed on carousing the town without a care in the world, Robert was able to load the ship with his wife, plus 12 other slaves, and set sail towards the area of the Charleston Harbor where the Union Navy had set up a blockade. But in order to reach the Union blockade, the planter first had to sail past five Confederate ports, all of which required passing vessels to sound the correct whistle signals, or be fired upon. Now, take a minute right here. Now, can you imagine, first of all, how terrified the women and children must have been below deck, all hunkered down together, holding each other, not even daring to breathe lest they be found out. And the men, too, on deck, piloting the ship. How absolutely terrifying it must have been. I mean, they're sailing on a stolen Confederate vessel. I mean, if they get caught, if they get found out, well, it's the end for them, and it ain't going to be pretty. But they all knew the risks. Robert and his crew wanted more for their lives and the lives of their children. They were going to live free or die trying. Now, having worked in and around the harbor for most of his life, Robert had intimate knowledge of the harbor and the surrounding waterways. And he, of course, knew the correct signals to give the Confederate forts as they sailed past. And when they safely passed the last fort, a collective sigh of relief was breathed. But it was short-lived, for now they were sailing straight 
for the Union blockade in a Confederate vessel. They could surely still be fired upon. As Robert and his crew aboard the planter approached the blockade, Robert raised the white flag of surrender. He then turned over all the armaments, all the ship's charts, and a Confederate naval codebook, as well as the planter itself, to the captain and crew of the Union ship called the Onward. Robert, his family, and the others were at last free. But Robert's story doesn't end there, not by a long shot. Later, Robert went on a speaking tour in the North to tell of his adventure, as well as help recruit other black soldiers for the war effort. And by late 1863, Robert returned to the war zone to pilot, of all vessels, the Planter, now a Union vessel. And in December of that same year, Robert was promoted to captain of the Planter, making him the first black man to hold that rank in the history of the U.S. Navy. Quite an accomplishment. And after the war, Robert went on to politics. And upon entering politics and during his tenure, Robert was at the forefront and endured many a new and difficult kind of fight that he encountered during the war. And during his time in politics, Robert had his fair share of successes and failures, setbacks and victories. In brief summary of Robert Small's political career, he was first elected to the South Carolina House of Representatives. He was then elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Robert Smalls served in the Congress from 1868 to 1889. Now, Robert Smalls' time as an elected official is a fascinating story in and of itself, which is well worth exploring. But for now, when Representative Robert Smalls' last term ended, he and his family moved back to Beaufort. He then purchased and resided in the house in which he was once a slave. Robert lived there peacefully with his family until his death on February 22, 1915. And there, my friends, you have a truly, uniquely American success story. One that should be celebrated. Until next time, thanks for listening.